Numbers chapter 16, simply entitled the message this morning, Rebellion. Uh, and let's just seek the Lord for that needed word of, of prayer and help to be given in the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank thee again for thy presence. We bless the Lord for good singing. And Lord, we praise thee for these words of the psalm and of the hymn. And we have a great high priest whose name is love. We pray, Lord, that thou would bring us into this passage, give us understanding, maybe seek Christ. We pray, Lord, that thou would open up our, our ears, open up our heart to receive the grafted word of God. Speak, Lord, to saint and sinner alike. Lord, to that end, fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Often in the book of Numbers, there's opposition, there's rebellion, there's murmuring, there is criticism directed against the leadership of Moses. That opposition comes from all different quarters. It has come from the people. It has come from the majority of the spies. It has even come from Moses' own family. And now this time around, it comes from a group of leaders. The figurehead of that group is a man by the name of Korah. And then there are three other leaders from the tribe of Reuben. And then there's 250 leaders or men of renown, men of distinction from the other tribes. And just to give you the context, men and women, of this passage that we're looking at this morning, this rebellion is so notorious that it is mentioned in the New Testament in the context of condemning apostasy. Jude, verse 11, says this, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greatly after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And it's speaking about apostasy as Jude does in his little epistle. Indeed, how significant it can be understood is that it's the only occurrence that is recorded in connection with the 38 years of wilderness wanderings, even for the nation of Israel. Moses is in the firing line, but so is Aaron as the high priest, because Korah wanted to take over that role. And so the seriousness of this can be detected when you consider that the problem that is raised here was the priesthood. And by extension of that thought, the sacrifices that were appointed by God to be carried out. And so ultimately, what we're looking at, what the problem here is about, is the way of salvation. The question may be asked, are human beings able to decide how to approach God? Or is that something that is determined by God alone? Authority is very much under the spotlight here. And what we learn as we look at closer is that sin doesn't really change. Oh, the personnel may change. But the acts of sin are exactly the same, whether it's this generation or whether it is in the time of Moses himself. In this instance, it is Korah. Korah is a Levite, and that is important and significant to remember, as we shall see. There are three others, Dathan, Abiram, and on. And they come from the tribe of Reuben. Just want you to look at the words of verse 1 and 2 again. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, 
And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Aaron, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. It should be noted that the last of those that I've named as the man called On, the son of Peleth, is never mentioned again. This may suggest to us that somehow, not too far into this rebellion, this man realized what was going on, and so he pulled back from the very brink of destruction. He fades out of the picture. And if he withdrew from the rebellion as opposed to falling out with his fellow conspirators, then it shows us, does it not, the mercy of God and the possibility of repentance with God. Certainly we can say that there's mercy of God to do with Korah because while Korah was to be judged, his sons were to be spared. They distanced themselves from this rebellion and they lived to continue the family line. And of course we mention, or we come across them mentioned in many of the Psalms, in the book of Psalms. And so this morning, I just want us to look at what is rebellion. Won't you notice the contention? <coughs> this was no private matter with Moses where the grievances could be aired in a respectable manner. This was a most public affair. And so the leaders are there headed by Korah. There are 250 princes of the tribes. As I've read already, men of renown, they're also engaged in this contention along with a congregation of followers. You look at verse 19. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them onto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. It indicates to us that Korah is a very persuasive character. He's gathered all the congregation around him. He's gained most of the people as his supporters in this evil rebellion, the sort of which we have seen in history and down through the history books the, with the likes of Hitler. It so happens that I'm reading a book at the minute on how Hitler got his fame and how he was able to gain the support of Germany in such a wicked manner, particularly against the Jews, as we all know. And even how the churches in Germany fell in behind Hitler at that particular time. And that's a great mystery. Almost unimaginable. Until you realize that Hitler was involved with evil spirits. Hitler was taken up with the occult. He was a devil-inspired man. The author that I'm reading the book of suggests that what was seen in Hitler and his persuasive powers to gather a nation around him, he, he had held a position in government before he came to prominence. But he had certainly those persuasive powers that were evident to all concerned. And those same persuasive powers will be even more evident in the final Antichrist. He will succeed in not merely having a country follow him, but have a widespread following right throughout the world. And men and women, as with Korah, so in the last days, there will be exceptions. Because not all will follow the Antichrist. The child of God can't follow the Antichrist. 
And not all were to follow Korah alone. He had persuasive powers to gather an enormous amount of the congregation with him. But the basis of contention was down to position. They didn't like Moses being chief of staff. And that particularly was relevant to Korah and to the other main leaders. To Korah because he came from the Levites, the Korathites, who was a branch of the Levites. Moses too being a Levite. And to the tribe of Reuben. Because remember, Reuben was the first of all tribes, yet they didn't hold position. The contention was furthermore over the priesthood. Indeed, this was the greatest issue to them. The priesthood was given exclusively to Aaron and to his family. Again, they were Levites, but so was Korah. And so the charge was that Moses and Aaron had taken to themselves too much power. They had exalted themselves above all the rest of the people. And immediately we might suggest that such a charge was ill-founded as he was the most reluctant of man to take upon himself what was placed upon him. Moses, we read, was a meek man. He was happier to shrink away from taking upon him any responsibility. Korah was ignorant of the real spirit and the real character of Moses that I trust we have seen already in the course of our studies. And what could be said of Moses was likewise true of Aaron. He didn't seek the position of the priesthood. You know, oftentimes those who are contentious over positions are usually the least qualified for them. And the more unqualified a person is, then the more likely they seek to pursue a position of authority and cause a fuss and division when they are passed over and when they are rejected for that position. The problem doesn't often come with those in position. The problem comes with those who don't get the position. The premise for this contention was just as ludicrous and ridiculous. Look at it in verse, the words of verse 3. He says, You take too much upon you, this is Korah speaking, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. We might be tempted to think, Where has Korah been all this time? Haven't we just considered the idolatry that was to take place at Mount Sinai, the immorality that went along with it? Haven't we just left that place called Kadesh where there was unbelief among the nation of Israel <coughs> so that they wouldn't go in? They wouldn't cross over into that promised land as those two spies encouraged them to do so. And they are but two occasions where the people were not holy. And the Lord wasn't blessing them. But then that is the argument that is presented today. Everyone is on the same footing and therefore qualifies for the position. It is the premise that lowers standards. It is the premise that fails to recognize skills and divine callings, not least in the church of Jesus Christ in its setting where women are exalted, where those immoral are portrayed as just as suitable as men to hold positions as those whom God has set apart in the oversight. And that's what Paul has to deal with as he brings it out in the epistles to both the church at Corinth and some of his other epistles. 
Korah's argument was not factual. They weren't holy. And neither did they have God's favor upon them. They instead had been unholy and had been rebellious ever since they had left the land of Egypt. And so you see the contention. What about the choice? When Moses was to give reply, he does so in a most most humble manner, for you read that he fell upon his face. Had he been a man who was lording it over the rest, then he wouldn't have fallen on his face before Korah and the crowd there that was assembled that day. The answer to the accusation was that the choice of Moses and Aaron being in position was because it was a divine choice. Because that's the one whom, before whom he fell down. He was in submission to the Lord. It was the Lord God at the burning bush who had revealed himself to Moses, who had chosen him to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt onto the promised land. He spoke as a prophet of the Lord with the word of God. And for Aaron, the priesthood, or the position of being the priest, the high priest, was bestowed upon him as well by divine order. If you take a moment just to come over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. You look at the words of verse (coughs) 4. Hebrews 5 and verse 4 says this. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Ghost uses Aaron as an illustration there? We don't take these things upon ourselves. This is authority bestowed by God, called of God, as was Aaron. And so it ought to be for positions within the church. It is for those whom God has called. Acts chapter 13, we read of Barnabas and Saul were set apart by God for the work which he had called them unto. We read of the church laying hands on them, sending them away, first missionaries. The church being in total agreement with the divine choice of God in the matter. And when God calls, he also equips, because most who are called feel inadequate as God calls the weak and the foolish things and the base things that no flesh should glory in his presence. And this choice was to be confirmed. For what Moses says must be what the Lord had instructed him to say. He's speaking as God's prophet. And God was to answer in a most powerful way. The instruction for this confirming was that Korah and the others were to each bring their censers and put fire in them. And the Lord would show them on the morrow who was holy. Whom he had set apart. Moses was leaving the choice up to God. And to who should be in the priesthood. God would single out Aaron and his family. As those accepted to be priests. Anyone today who usurps position. Over those whom God has ordained in his church. Are nothing but a core of movement. That's it. Because they're doing exactly the same. As Korah was doing here. 
And this was a tried and tested means of confirming whom God had called. Korah and the company with him should have feared. They should have remembered what had happened to the two sons of Aaron. He turned back to Leviticus chapter 10. Opening two verses, we read about two sons. It says now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them a censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. They didn't follow the rules that God had laid down for sacrifice. It says that they offered strange fire. They sought to usurp a position which they were never asked to do. They were judged for it. Had Korah and the congregation not remembered that? You'll note how Moses warns them. He charges Korah and the others of being disrespectful. He turns their accusation upon themselves. Look at the words at the end of verse 7. He gives them the instruction. Put fire therein. Put incense in in them before the Lord tomorrow. It shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. And here's a warning. He says, ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. He turns around the very accusation that they had placed against Moses and Aaron. It was Korah and those with him who had taken upon themselves more authority and power than they ought to have done so. And their disrespect is laid bare in verse 9 and 10. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also. They already had been privileged. It should have deterred them from following this course of evil. God had privileged the tribe of Levi. The Levites, you will know, of course, when it comes to the laying out of the land of promise, they weren't given a portion or inheritance because their inheritance was to look after the things of the tabernacle. They were set apart for that. And the privilege was there. And Aaron and his family as priests were there, and they were greatly privileged. But also so was the other Levites for the other religious duties, as are revealed in Numbers chapter 3 and chapter 4. But as Moses stated, they counted it as a small thing. They must have done so or they wouldn't have pursued this rebellious act. They already had privileges, but yet they expected more. They coveted more honor. Their proud heart is puffed up. And Moses is able to discern Korah. For he says at the end of verse 10, Seek ye the priesthood also. That was a real issue, you see. In today's language, it would probably be promoted as equal rights. Many of those who shout for equal rights are no different than Korah. What they really mean is they want special privileges. 
And hence laws are passed that are under the guise of equal rights or equally, uh, in fact, special privileges for the complainers. And when they get those special privileges, it's not long before the hand goes out again and they want more privileges. Men and women, sin is exactly the same no matter what generation it appears in. But by challenging Moses and Aaron, they were actually challenging God. And Moses calls Korah out on that as well. Verse 11. For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. See that? It's against the Lord. They were rebelling against God's order. He says, and what is Aaron? that you murmur against him. To use the name of Moses or Aaron was only a facade. Weak is the leadership that seeks to placate the disobedient and the rebellious and the murmurer. And that applies to the state as well as it does to the church. And we are seeing it in both places. Weak leadership. While God is merciful, yet his mercy does not trample on his holiness. And therefore, judgment sooner or later will fall in the rebel. For dear soul, you cannot continually be against the Lord and seek to come out on the winning side. And that's where Korah was here. And Moses says, ye murmur against the Lord. What about the contempt? The same reason <clears throat> we find Dothan and Abiram for some reason have left. They're not before Moses when he says these words. Maybe they had gone back to their tents, but Moses called for them to appear before him in the words of verse 12, Moses sent, sent, that means they weren't there, sent to call Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but said, we will not come up. You'll notice their response. Authority was despised. They refused to come before Moses when he summons them. It's repeated again at the end of verse 14 as an indication that they were not supporting Moses as the leader of Israel. We're not coming up. And you'll see also that their response amounts to the actions of Moses being degraded. They spoke in a degrading manner of what Moses had done. They accuse him of depriving them of good things by bringing them out of Egypt. Look at the words of verse 13, it's nearly incredible to, to read them. They said, Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us out of the land that floweth with milk and honey? Men and women, Egypt was never described as a land of milk and honey. How twisted the facts are here. And this is their reply. This is their response. Had they forgotten the slavery? Had they forgotten the servitude in that land? But you'll read on. To kill us in the wilderness. Except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. They accuse Moses of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. 
How many had died in the wilderness? But it wasn't his fault. It's because of their sin and unbelief. They accuse him of making himself a prince among them, when in fact it was God who had put him in position. It's clear that these two desired the position of leading the people and would despise anyone who held that position. They accuse him of not fulfilling his word. Verse 14, Moreover, thou hast not brought us into the land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Have they forgotten of what happened at Kadesh? Or because of their unbelief, they didn't enter in. It wasn't a failure on the part of Moses or Aaron. And it certainly shouldn't have disqualified him from his office of leading the nation. You can be sure that a characteristic of those who are rebels is always seeking to blame someone else or something else. And the real problem is themselves. Look at the verse 14 again. The accusation is of deception. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? He's accusing them, of Moses that is, of willfully deceiving the people. Of blinding their eyes so they don't know what is happening. Those who were guilty of deception were those who were making the false accusations. What contempt was shown by Dothan and by Abiram. Yet these were hurtful arrows fired at Moses. No wonder we read he was angry. Yet in a manner that protested his innocence before God. And which requested that their offering be rejected. Yet that they would be spared from being destroyed. And God declared that he would destroy them. Moses and Aaron did what they always had done. Verse 22. They interceded. They fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation. They did what they always had done. They got the prayer. That's the caliber of the man who was leading the nation of Israel. That Korah and those with him falsely accuse. And they say to the Lord, Will one man's sin going to be the cause of destroying the whole congregation? The answer to that, of course, is no. For God had shown the same at Sodom and Gomorrah. He had destroyed the cities. But in answer to the intercession of Abram, the righteous were spared. Lot was brought out of it. His two daughters as well. At the behest of Abram in prayer. But the city was destroyed. That destruction of Korah will have to leave until the next time. But I haven't finished. I want you to see and finally the commentary here. The commentary. The priesthood of Aaron was important. So important that God judged those who dared to challenge it. You might wonder why was Aaron so important? It's so important, men and women, because the aspect about it is it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. The best commentary upon these verses is the Scriptures themselves, particularly what you'll find in Hebrews. It revealed the appointment of the Holy, Ghost, of the Holy Priest. 
the high priest. Just as Aaron was appointed of God, not taking upon himself that position, so the same is noted with the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed to be our Savior, appointed to be our great high priest. Turn, please, to Hebrews 5. <coughs> I've already read to you verse 4. Let me read it again. It says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, <coughs> as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see those two verses, they're quotations from the Old Testament scriptures, from the Psalms. They indicate to us that Christ didn't take upon himself this position. But he that said to him, in other words, God the Father, thou art my son, in whom I have begotten thee. God is the one who determines how atonement is made. For that was one of the tasks of the high priest. The high priest basically had two tasks in the Old Testament. One, to offer sacrifice. Two, to intercede on behalf of the people. And you bring that forward into the New Testament. And to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And conversely, that's how, and that's how we should approach on to God. It's through God's means. This is not for us to decide. God chooses the one who would be our high priest. God chose the one who would be our mediator, the only mediator between God and a sinful people. The church doesn't decide that. The prelates of Rome don't decide that. It's God. And that's why, men and women, young people, we approach the Lord, not through Mary, not through angels, not through prophets or anybody else, but through Jesus Christ, because he's the one appointed of God. It reveals we have a perfect high priest. While Aaron was unperfect, imperfect, you should say, sinful, yet the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ, who's one, who is, he is one who is utterly perfect and holy. Under the Levitical system, when sacrifice was to be made, the priest would first offer his own sacrifice for sin. For his own sin. Because he was a sinful man. And only after doing so could he approach God on behalf of the people. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins first. For he had none. Hebrews 7 verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. 
It reveals a perfect high priest. It reveals the sacrifice that our high priest made. The offerings that Aaron made were types that pointed out the way of God's salvation. The sacrifice that Christ made offering himself is the only sufficient way of salvation. It doesn't need to be repeated again and again. It atones for the sins of all his people. And that sacrifice was once and for all as opposed to the many offerings that Aaron and the priests in the Old Testament had to make. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It's not possible. Verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's indicated in that when Christ had finished his atoning work, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. There's no salvation through any other. God in the Old Testament established the way he could be approached. And so in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is the only mediator and he's also the sacrifice. As the perfect sacrifice, he takes the penalty for our sins. And as the only mediator, he intercedes for us now before his heavenly Father on account, on the basis of that sacrifice, on the basis of the blood been shed. That means that the priesthood of Christ cannot be rejected. You see, that's why this was so serious. That's why it's singled out. Because Korah was rejecting the priesthood of Christ in type. They were attempting to do what Aaron was called to do. They were attempting to usurp themselves into that position. Their failure was not only in seeking to come before God in a way not appointed by him. But they were trying to put themselves into the holy office. They were trying to set up a new way of approach. They were trying to uh, set up a new religion. They were seeking to work out another way of salvation apart from the blood of sacrifice. Ultimately, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, that's rebellion of the highest order. I close with a quotation from William Taylor. He said this, If you repudiate Christ's death as a sacrifice for sin, if you deny the necessity for atonement of any sort, then are you kindred spirits with Dathan and Abiram who maintained that all priesthood was unnecessary. I trust that you're not guilty of rebelling against the Christ of God. I trust that you don't sit in my church today, this building, thinking that you can get and you will get to heaven some other way. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's through Christ alone. In the Old Testament, we see that in type. 
That's why this was so serious. Because Korah and those followers, they sought to reject that way. The only way that God had decreed whereby we can approach unto him. Man or woman, young person, today, the way is open up in the dark paths of sin. But it's at Calvary's cross. That's where you must begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. May you do so. May the Lord bless His Word to each of our hearts this morning. For His only name's sake. 110. We'll sing in closing of love divine what hast thou done. The immortal God had died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. Page 221. It's number 110. We'll stand as we sing it.
Brother and our God, we thank thee for thy word. We thank the Lord that took nothing less than the death of thy beloved Son to open up a way that we rebels might be brought back to God. Thank the Lord for the precious blood that we've been singing about. Thank the Lord we can sing, my Lord, my love is crucified. Pray, Lord, that I might speak to those who have no experience of the new birth. They're yet in nature's darkness. Maybe they're thinking they can get to heaven some other way. Pray, Lord, that I would write thy word in the heart. I might speak when the preacher's voice is silent. Part us now with thy fear and thy blessing. May thy presence abide with us the rest of the day. And Lord, bring us back into thy house tonight again. And do our souls good. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.